on today's episode of Created. We're told, go back and see if you can turn this into like a, a, a we call it now, that we, we, we say, we build the operating system for brands. That's Oof, what I love that. Yeah, that's really what we do. Like people talk about identity or whatever. It's not enough to recognize a brand. Every, the way you interact with the brand is different. Welcome to Created, the Advertising and Design Club of Canada podcast that uncovers how some of the best campaigns get made. Theme music and recording studio care of Grayson Music. And I'm Loranda Martin-Evans, founder of Fellow Human Creative. On today's episode, we're with Barry Quinn, founder and chief creative at Quake Creative and Design. In 2020, he launched Quake, a design-based creative and strategic agency that focuses on creating unmistakable brands in a relentless world. But today, we're talking about beer because it's beer season. In fact, it's, we're going to talk about Miller Lite, to be exact. So, Barry, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I feel like we should be having a Miller Lite right now. In, yeah. In the spirit of, okay, maybe after this wraps, we can go grab one. Because like, even just talking about it, I'm like, mm, Miller Lite, summer is upon us. Like, I'm feeling the vibes. That's one of the fun things about working on a beer client. I bet. You're like, oh, what are we going to do? Well, we'll, we'll, why don't we go out on the patio and have some beer? It's just research. It's research. We're getting to know the product. Oh, and we should do some competitive analysis. The next thing you know, it's 4 a.m. Oh, God. I remember (laughs) flying to London uh, to have to have beer at a Pilsner Cal bar where they literally cast the the beer there. Oh, cool. Um, And because we had to to have that experience to understand. Had to have that experience. And I was That's like, how great creative and I was like, well, I mean, we, we met the, the global team when we were there, but I was like, yeah, of course, of course, no problem. No problem. Oh, man. Okay. So, so Miller Lite, this is a huge, huge, huge global brand. Huge. Where does Canada fit? Like, how does this whole story unfold? And for the listeners who might know the campaign, what are we talking about here? So Miller Lite's a, like, it's a strange account. So the account, uh, Molson Coors, so it's out of Chicago. And it's a global account. So it's a big beer, obviously, North America, but it's a big beer in South America and other places of the world. And South Africa is a big part of it and all that. So it's, 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 it's a huge brand. And what's weird is it always seemed to, for a long, for like 10 years stretch or something, there was always some Canadians involved somehow. Really? Yeah. It's oh. very strange. So when we first well, we started- We do know beer pretty well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's the Molson part. I mean, it's partly, it's partly Canadian. Um. And it was S.A.B. Miller. And anyway, so we ended up working on that brand through obviously a friend that we knew. Um, Gannon Jones was a client of ours, one of the founding clients at, at uh, Juniper Park through uh, through the PepsiCo days. Okay. And he was working on Miller Lite. So Canadian in Chicago working on the brand. And he called us in uh, for two projects, sort of, um, that were just really minor. And one of them was just, you know, figuring out this brand that, so when people say Miller Lite right now, people forget this kind of the brand that invented light beer. Light beer, I think this, I'm probably got the stats wrong now, but I think some like 70 or 60% of all the beer that that time drunk in America was like a Coors Light, a Miller Lite or a Bud Light. Really? Like it's a huge. So what year are we talking about here? Like two. Like early 2000s? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. No, uh, no, no, no. 2015, something like that. 
Oh, okay. No, uh, yeah. Well, we did it for that. I did it for so long, I can't even remember. So, Seven, like, uh, in the two tens. Yeah. Okay. So, and and at that time, th- these brands were these massive, huge brands. Invent this whole category, uh, and then they just stopped innovating completely. Hmm. So most of the brands had really no way of talking to consumers outside of commercials. And I don't mean like what we call commercials now. I mean like old-fashioned, taste great, let's fill in kind right. of commercials. So when we started looking at the brand and we were looking at the whole, one of the things that we did as part of our, what we do at Quake, we do these like visual audits where we kind of break down. It's almost like when you say to your kids, use your words. And if a brand doesn't have the vocabulary, it can't say the things it needs to say. And the vocabulary was very bro. It was very guys. Very bro. Oh, yeah. Like, like when we first started working on the brand, if you had Googled the brand, you could literally still find corporately sanctioned, I think, women with pasties on with the logo painted on their <laughs> naked bodies, basically. Oh, my God. Um, like, you could find those. You could find, um, like... Some like if we wanted to show the existing reel at work, it probably would be considered not suitable. Really, like women kind of on beds and and like pillow fighting and like every sexist trope you can think of. And that was the brand standard at the time. That was, I think, the category standard at the time. Man, it's it's hard it, to it's, go back. <laughs> when you go, when you when I look at the old decks, you're like, I cannot believe that's what was in market. So, oh, man. and I'm, I mean, and Miller Lite wanted to change that. So this isn't like they were like. They weren't fighting for that. They right. wanted away from that. Right. And, and to your point, Sea of Same, you, you just said all, also oh, all the beers. They were, were all that. some version of that. And I mean, society wasn't there. So the weird thing is they had this product that was the right product. Actually, people like drinking very light beers. That's what majority of people drink. So you have the, you know, the bearded tattoo hipsters drinking the IPAs. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the trend is actually even away from things that taste like beer, right? To other products. So... Now, certainly. Yeah, oh, coolers, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So, this trend has been happening. Anyway, so we started looking at the brand. And so, the first pro- thing was just like figure out how um, the brand could talk today. And so, the challenge you have is that when everything is like funny, funny commercial, set up, set up, set up, logo at the end, how do you do an Instagram post like that mm-hmm. and have anybody know it was you? How do you do an event? How do you do a concert? How do you tie in with the NFL? How do you do something at the local bar? And what you found was all they ever did was just like a picture of a beer. So, like beer advertising looked a little like cigarette advertising from the 70s. It was just like something happening and in the corner, a close-up shot of like a large product. Right. And then you add this weird double logo where like the logo on the product is large and then the logo for the ad is like the same size as the logo for the product and the whole thing just and then you just realize it's just not made. It's not so, it's not made to make sense. Like this has got to be the early days of Instagram. We're still finding our feet oh, yeah, here, totally. social media. So there weren't influencers. I mean, were people just basically putting print ads in a square and putting them on social media at this point? I, I don't even know if they were doing anything. Yeah, okay. Yeah, like I like I like we had nothing to work with. Gotcha. So well, that's kind of Fun. Uh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it started out as a small project. Okay. And then we started working into it. And then we were working with uh, Stephen Butler and the guys in LA at, at the TBWA office there because they had the advertising account. So we didn't have the advertising account at Jennifer Park. Um, and we were just doing this project. And really what we were doing is like a design audit to figure out 
how they could get away from the dreaded double logo. Because the challenge was Turner Duckworth had redesigned the can, the bottle. Mm-hmm. So they had to show that. Yep. But then, like, then you can't put a white can on white backgrounds and there's all kinds of things and the logo. And so we just started doing this work to figure out wh- how do people know a Miller Lite's a Miller Lite? Like, what is the design language? Can we break it apart? Can we produce other ways of letting you know it's the brand without just the giant logo? Right. And then how do we show the new packaging without making everything they do exactly the same? <laughs> yeah. Like it would get really, really dull in no time at all. Yeah. If you, if you think about what they do, they get, you know, from the top down, you have all the big advertising, the big stuff, but it's a beer brand. So you've got every event that they do. Then you've got these distributors all over the country and they do things and you can give them rules. But everybody's not going to follow the rules. So you have to give them tools. So if you wanted to make the brand interesting, it's got to be interesting in so many places. Um, And they really didn't have any of those assets. So our job was to figure out, how does anybody know that it's a Miller Lite? Like, how do you know? So we started really deconstructing and breaking um, the things down. So that was one project. And then another tiny little project was um, they do all these concerts. I mean, huge concerts. So they would do like the Gov Ball and they would do Bonnaroo and they would, you know, they would do Boston Calling and I mean, you name it. Every great concert you get to go to if, if this is your client because they do them all. Um, and they were like, can you do some posters for us or something? And that's when these two worlds kind of started to collide because uh, Louis Duarte, who was one of the designers that worked on the project, uh, now over at Humanity. Hello, Louis. Um, he did this... Uh, this little piece where he broke down the can into these kind of abstract shapes over top of a photo. Yes. And when we looked at that, we were like, that's pretty cool. Super cool. Yeah. That led to the creation of what we call the minimalist can, which is this little graphic element of the can. The minimalist can became a one-off that was just a Christmas card. Really? The Christmas card? That's it. It was a Christmas card. Like a corporate... Corporate Christmas card. Okay. It was rushed out, you know. But Really? Yeah. And then what we did is we did screen prints, like big screen prints of it. And we sent those to all the distributors. Okay. Because the distributors make a lot of decisions. And if the distributors love something and if you solve problems for them, they become your advocates. Okay. And they have a very... um, important voice because they're they're in the markets they know the markets so That's right. can you what does a distributor do Did so they sell the, they sell the beer they make the beer locally and they sell it and so they have they'll licenses sell to the beer store or the grocery store in the u.s yeah. or the okay and they, they gotcha. might be like and they're all over the country right so so they hold a lot of power they they hold a they're an important voice for okay, sure cool so and they're and they know their markets and they know if things are working and if they're not working. And they, and they, got a, they do a lot of the tactical ground stuff. So they get the poster. So they get they the poster. It, so we didn't realize they love it. Yeah. They put it up. They become fans. Um, then when we start working on the GovBall, we take this minimalist approach and we start building it into posters. So the, Gov, the very first GovBall poster we did was uh, King Kong climbing the Empire State Building. And it was designed in a way where like all the colors are the brand's colors and if you stand back they kind of look like the label so there's like you know the the red in the center then there's like parts of the illustration that are gold and the blue and on the white background and then light is at the top of it and then all of the little half tones are like the dot that's in the center of the logo yeah um 
so the very first one we did when um, we did with King Kong, and it was fantastic. Turned out great. And did you have to get rights for that? Okay, so here's the problem. Oh, oh no. <laughs> so we do have to get rights for that. And uh, I have this meeting, and I'm presenting King Kong work to one of the most important distributors. And the meeting goes horribly. Oh, no. Yeah. And... It went so bad that, uh, you know, I called my client afterwards and I'm like, I totally understand if you kick me off the account. <laughs> like, what, it was like one of those career moments. It's just, just one like, of those moments where, or I'm just like, this is, uh, I just said, I'm sorry. We like, we did the best we could. Like, I thought this would have went really well. And I just like, damn it. And I still remember it. It was like a, a cold day. I'm standing at the corner of Young and Bloor. It's this, this, the rain is coming down. It's kind of that wet, sleety snow. It's just miserable. I don't have my jacket on because I rushed down to call him. I don't want to have to call in the office because I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to hear. Oh, and I'm, I just said, look, we did our best. I'm sorry. I really thought it was the right answer. I think it fell, you know, but that was just my take on it. I didn't, I wasn't told that by anybody. Anyway, flash forward. Not only did the distributors love it so much, we ended up getting into a little bit of trouble because they used it everywhere beyond where we had the rights to use King Kong because it ended up going in advertising as opposed to just the posters and stuff. And so not only did we, did I totally misread the meeting. Wow. Yeah. And I've been doing like hundreds of meetings. Like the dude actually loved the work? She loved it. Oh, she, she, loved, she yeah. loved the work and just... Yeah, she loved it actually. And they loved it so much they used it like way more than we... And that's when we started to understand one... Barry, don't be a drama queen. <laughs> and two, uh, there was something special about the work at the inside level. So like the, all the distributors, the people on the floor, the people that bottled, the people that, they loved the work. And they loved it so much that we ended up having to pay. I, I don't know what the price was, but we did, like, we're like, we did, actually didn't get the rights to use King Kong in advertising. We had to go and get the rights for all of that. And um, so they used it way more. So then what ended up happening was, that created a groundswell of, oh, maybe there's something in all of this. Maybe this is an interesting way to do it. Maybe maybe this new graphic language might work. But it ha it wasn't totally bought off yet. It was just like a one-off. So uh, we worked to that point with uh, Gannon and then another Canadian, Greg Butler, um, who was there. And then um, Andy England was the CMO. Anyway we're told go back and see if you can turn this into like a, a, a we call it now that we, we we say we build the operating system for brands that's Oof, what i love that yeah that's really what we do like people talk about identity or whatever it's not enough to recognize a brand Every, the way you interact with the brand is different you know dunkin donuts and starbucks sell almost the same thing but everything about the operating system of those two businesses is different. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Tim Hortons would be the same way. For better, for worse, depending upon who you are, right? Right. So anyway, so we start putting this project together. We come into Chicago. We're super excited. We're all ready to go. I'm out for dinner. And we find out that like Dave Kroll is now the CMO. Okay. So now we're on to CMO number two. Right. And the meeting, That always works out yeah, well. <laughs> and, the next, and the meeting the next day is going to be with Dave Kroll, not... Not who we were. So this was planning. a surprise. Total surprise, and uh, and so we're like, oh, you know, it's another one of those like King Kong moment where I was yeah. like, oh my god. I, I mean, there was no reason to think it would go badly, but you know, you, you you're preparing for something. Anyway, um, you know, early Gannon Jones was huge proponent. Inside help really did a lot of work, and it turned out Dave Kroll equally 
massive fan of the work. Oh, so, great. so we went from kind of like some all the early kind of work, and then under the next part, he looked at it and he goes, "Let's do it." And then, so we took those ideas and we turned them into a big brand system. And then um, we kind of did that for 17 quarters. This is, it's so interesting that because often you hear stories, the new CMO comes in and he or she wants to put her, his stamp on on the work, right? So they kind of want to scrap what's already been done and and go their own way. But in this case, there was a lot of love for the work and in, in fact, took it forward. And a huge risk too. Like, yeah, we said to the beer industry, yeah, we're not going to show a beer, a, a um, um, glass of beer with beer swirling down the side. Yeah. We're going to show a three-color, flattened, you know, minimalist can instead. Yes. By the way, we did research and proved they worked equally well. They created appetite appeal equally well. So, like, it wasn't a risk, but it, but it, at the time, it was so incredibly risky to do that because there had been thirty years of selling beer the other way, totally different way uh, of doing I, it. I mean, I've worked on beer. It's like the the droplets on the glass yeah. and then this much foam of the head. I mean, we still did yeah. stuff like that, but yeah. we built the brand the other way. So we started working on that. I mean, we went through. Uh, so while while we worked on the brand, there was three different CMOS. Three complete different wow. teams working on it. Lots of great people. So we got very lucky. We got to work with great partners. Um, but then we also worked with three different agencies. So Oh, really? Yeah. So I started working on it with TWA. And then I ended up working on it with uh, 180 LA. was my advertising partner. They were doing the advertising. And then DDB, who still has the business. Today. So you talk about they did the advertising. And um, you know when you first began this little project, you were doing the identity or sort of the operating system yeah. versus the advertising. Like how, how does that come into play with the egos and the different agencies and LA versus Toronto? I wish there was a lot of drama in this answer because it would make this podcast way more fun to listen to. <laughs> yeah, I want the gossip. Yeah, but for the most part, it turned out pretty good. Really? Yeah, um, c- because we really had very different ways of storytelling. Okay. Uh, and we were both interested in telling very different stories. And there was so many instances where we would do something and then that idea would get picked up by the partner agencies. And then sometimes actually they just made it better. So it was fine. And kind of like we have an expression we use where sometimes we're the farmer, sometimes we're the chef. Like sometimes we just have to give you the best ingredients and that's our job. And sometimes we make the meal and you know, we just got to go with it. Like I would not be the person to do a traditional advertising campaign. That I just wouldn't do it as good as as like we got to work with some of the best people, right? So you know we just wouldn't be the right people to do that. Um, and then and then there were some times where you're like, oh, I really wish we had done that. But I mean, we had this little fun idea where we wanted to make um, ugly sweaters for beer in bars, <laughs> like because, beer cozies. But yeah, actually beer cozy, like- but it's like ugly Christmas sweater. <laughs> That's great. Uh, because they had this promotion where they wanted to sell uh, more draft beer. But then, you know, the guys at, at TWA LA, they took that idea and they knit an entire um, billboard with this uh, this artist that knit in, in, in New York. So they did that. So that was like an even cooler yeah, idea of cool. the idea we had. And then working with ARC, we took that idea into a whole range of, of like, of, um, apparel products and this is kind of before everybody had apparel yes um of ugly sweaters and we would do like ugly sweaters and then we invented these um uh because you know um metal light you know it's cold weather right yeah yeah so um we invented these gloves 
that kept your hand warm, but then it had a little pocket that you put your beer in, and it was the cold weather beer koozie, and oh it would keep God. your beer cold and your hand warm. Um, anyway, long story short, I think they sell half a million pieces of knitwear a year. Still? Yeah. Get for out Miller of here. Light. For like, I don't know how many years it's been. So, you know, sometimes, yeah, you're bummed. But other times, other people take what's essentially your idea, and then they make it into a an even cooler idea. That's, you know, because a lot of the times you see these gimmicky one-offs in aver- in our business and you think you're not really making that thing. You did you did sort of the one thing so you could enter it in the shows. But what you're saying is, no, they actually still to this day are selling this apparel. Uh, I think there might be fashion brands we know that don't move half a million pieces of apparel for a sure, year. For sure. Like actual fashion companies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the campaign continues to this day. To this day. So, and what's weird is a lot of the visual language and the way that we worked on things. So one of the very early things we did was uh, we said like beer's kind of your wingman. So the things you love, we're one of them. We love the things you love. That's yeah. kind of a, a big part of, of the brand story. So we don't want to sell you advertising. We can both enjoy the things each other love. So you love ugly sweaters. We do ugly sweaters. So, you know, we did an early one, which was like the game, The it was a can that was, uh, like a video game controller. Yeah. And then Ari and his team uh, in Chicago at DDB turned that into the controller. Um, the so they made it into a real thing and then they had a whole <laughs> video game component. Um, but what was cool about that is like not only was it the same kind of storytelling just, you know, made into another, but even the language like the controller literally came from a weird little, we would do design studies all the time. And what we do, we do design studies for a bunch of reasons. One, it's not a real thing. It's just an idea. Nobody has to freak out because it's not being made. We're just studying. Yep. And what's great is everyone's like, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to study that idea. And then, of course, you fall in love with it and then you, you, you make the idea. Yeah. But nobody has to agree to anything. There's no budgets, whatever. So we, we did this little study and it was um, Jesse and Gerardo who are over at 123 now. And... Uh, they just did this wacky little illustri- animation that they just did, I think, probably just on their computer themselves, they did it. And I think it was Phil Collins in the air of the night. And it was this little six-second video that used one of the iconic cans that we did, but it was of a guitar, I think, and it would like strum to the music. Or maybe it was drums. I can't remember. But I, re- I remember we saw the idea and we were like, that's a pretty cool idea. We shared it with the client and we just got lucky that we had this weird idea that had no home, really. At the exact moment that um, they started the uh, six-second unskippable YouTube ads. Oh, yes. So I think we were the first or maybe the second brand to have content for that medium. Really? So we ended up doing 40 of them. And oh they're all these God. like... And they're, you know, the very early ones, very simple, like a... Um, you see a burger on a, on, it's all illustrated and they're cheap as chips to make, like not expensive. And like, you see the little red dot of the burger, it's on the grill and then it flips up and as it spins and when it comes back down, it becomes the red dot inside the middle light and then you hear that and then the logo. And it's all done in six seconds, it's in and it's out. And then we'll be, we made like 40 of them the first t- year. I think the first year we had 240 million views or some crazy number oh like that. God. I mean, they were paid advertising, but still, still, you know, it worked. Yeah. Um, and then the, um, like, we would do all your love, right? So soccer, whatever. And then we could 
you know, figure out through your search and everything what you loved. And of course, that was what was served up. And um, and we did those, I think, for years. They may still do them. I don't know. Um, but, the, you know, we just got lucky sometimes. You do that. And it's like, oh, but we had, but where we really got lucky was because we built the operating system that was made for the way people communicate today. And because the brand had this new way of talking, we could turn the con something into a very cheap six second but then we could also turn it into an amazing collaboration like the controller like the same the same methodology could could scale to either side and then an or arc you know could do the sweaters or twala could do the um the outdoor the, so that was kind of the magic of you know and when we st first started talking to them um you know, the brand had no idea that you could market like that or that you needed to produce a thing like that. And was this the whole, like when Juniper Park, when you were first launching that agency, is that where, it seems like a lot of your ideas are born from trial and error, curiosity, a little thing here, a tiny project here that morphs into this big thing. Is that what you envisioned when you began Juniper Park all those years ago? I'm not really sure. Like that's just, we're curious people. So that's yeah. we did that. And then we did have the luck of having... Um, you know, we used to kind of say like the X-Men, you know, somebody does fire, somebody does ice, somebody does this, somebody does that. So because we had people who were, you know, writer, art director, strategist, design background, we could very quickly holistically build up an idea, right? Because we had all the people there. Um, and it was probably, I mean, to be honest, Jane Hope and Paul Lavoie probably in our market deserve props for that idea. Because, you know, they were designers. She yeah. stayed on the design. Paul, you know, obviously moved more into the advertising side. And they probably built that. But early on, I mean, I, I would probably came along after them, not long after. I mean, probably 10 years after, 12 years after. But, you know, th there still wasn't a lot of, at that time, design integration within agencies in Canada. Yeah. Like, I think, I th when Alan G uh, um, hired me to go to G. Jeffrey, it was a pretty rare move to have a, a creative director for design within, you know, and of course I then hired Lisa Greenberg, you know, so we built a really strong team there, obviously. And she's fantastic. Um, and then the grip model, when we came in there, it was myself, Jill and um, John Fickelstein who came in to do, I think they called us the lab. We were the partners, the lab partners. Oh, cool. Yeah. And yeah. basically this was before there was like, I think even language for non-traditional, you know. Sure, yeah. And but what we found early on in the career was is that advertising happens downstream of design, right? So usually by the time you advertise something, all the brand language and the design's already been done. The yep. strategy's been done. The product has been designed. The packaging already exists. All the, you know. So what we always found was the design gave us like uh, a lot of early warning that there's something happening mm -hmm. because what we would do is we would uh, visualize the strategy before there was any advertising. So, so you, you were, you could already be working on a project for a year before there's even like a product. What? Like, yeah, like we, like with, with Quake, you know, one of the challenges we have is one of our largest clients, we have three, four, five projects we're working with them. Yeah. I don't think they're going to launch until 2023, 2024. That's such a gift. It's not That's really if so you're trying cool. to have people say, you should come work with us. We're amazing. Uh, what have you done? Well, we're not allowed to say we're under NDA. We oh, can't do anything. <laughs> it's a little difficult, but 
Okay, I want to get to how you launched Quake. I want to get to that first. But you've already done a launching of an agency before. You did, in fact, launch Juniper Park way back when. Can you take me back to that story? You were at Grip at the time. Is that what happened? Yeah, it was a really, um, you know, it's it's funny to think back, right? Because so much happens over, I was there for 10 years. Okay. And uh, it was probably the most intense 10 years of my life. So... You know, we, we have a meeting in New York. We're talking about doing this this new agency. Um, I come home. We all agree we're going to do this agency. The very next day, my first wife, Lisa, is... I'm at Honda. And I get a phone call. And terminal cancer. Ugh, I'm so sorry. And she's got two years to live. And she dies seven weeks later. So we I, had this, I didn't know that story. Yeah, That's so we had this fantastically oh great news the night before. And then the next morning, my whole world just implodes, which, which actually sets the stage in a weird way for Quake, oh uh, which happens, you know, many years later. So I'll talk, I'll talk about that later. But, but you know, so so it's a massively intense time. Oh my goodness! I don't know. How, and you had young two, kids. Two young kids. Yeah. So and I, you're launching an agency. And we're launching. Did an you agency. ever think, you know what? Fuck it! I'm not going to do this. Yes. Like, there's too much going on in my life. I'm just going to like ride so, it out at grip. Yeah, my partners were great. They gave me two or three months not to start the agency. So they started without me. And um, I basically just rode my mountain bike every day. Wow. And and there was a time like when I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm not going back. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have, you know. So I was like, I just need time yeah. to figure out who I am. Yeah. And, you know, friends and family around me are like, you need to go back to work. I think I was turning into like, I don't know, some kind of mountain bike bro losing touch with the world or... i mean that sounds all right but you you clearly love this industry and you love what you do so much i can see that your friend the people who know your best were like Man, yeah there's it's... a part of you that yeah and i yeah, so 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 we started the agency and it was a crazy rocket ship ride so you know i'd, I'd come before that from grip which was also a crazy rocket ship ride. like i think yep. i think the date at the time was grip was the fastest growing agency in canadian history and then I think when we had Juniper Park, we became the fastest. Like, I think, you know, whatever the metrics are. Um, so that business was crazy, partly because we were doing more U.S. business than most Canadian agencies, New York offices would do. Wow. Like, because we like were right doing- right away? Right away. Like, our, our first client was PepsiCo. Right. I so we were working that. on Lay's, which is like a $4 billion brand. Yeah. Like, I, I think that number's right. Please, somebody Google that number. <laughs> but I think it's like a $4 billion brand. It's wow. massive. Um, all over the world, right? Because it's 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 so it's, it's you know all through Central South America, all through India, all through Europe. It's gigantic. And, and was was Pepsi like Grip had the title client? That's how Grip launched. Was it the same with Juniper yeah, Park? Yeah. So, so it's we, like, okay, we have this. Yeah, we had one brand, and then um, we kind of turned that into like I think the brands we ended up working there. So if you think about the scale of these brands, and this is not the not the Toronto. This is the, the global work. Right. So we had, uh, you know, Lay's potato chips, I think the Ruffles for a while, uh, Rolled Gold, Miss Vicky's. But then you, you get into Tropicana, you get into Quaker. Yeah. Um, and then all of the strategy work. And I mean, there was just a ton of work. So, Pe- so Pepsi worked with you to create this agency is that how that worked no they were just a client they were you're like we're going to launch an agency and pepsi said we'll come with you yeah i mean you know it's 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 so strange the industry touts the work the work the work and Uh the work really matters yeah 
But, you know, when the chips are down, it's the relationships, the relationships, the relationships. That, <laughs> uh, I, I, that's such an important point. You know, because yes. every artist needs a patron. Yep. And, you know, it it's you think of what it takes. You're running a brand that is like enormous. Like a brand that's probably, you know, it's in every corner of the world. Yeah. And you decide that four people from Toronto are the best people who are completely unproven, don't haven't done anything, but it's just monumental for them to 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 choose you for that. Well, that's why I'm so curious. But it it, it was about the relationship. Is what the relationship we'd worked together uh, previously, um, um, in the you know the craft days and all of that kind of stuff, and um, you know ships all rise together and so yeah. we did that work and it was super fun um and what was some of that work because take me back because i remember it being so spectacular well the, you know sometimes the, it's the craziest things that make you do great work right so like lay's potato chips i can't give the numbers here but the increase in sales the first year that we did that campaign was so huge that I think it's probably like bigger than the Canadian potato chip business. What? Like, what was the campaign? So the campaign was this idea that potato chips were made by farmers, right? Yep. The farmer campaign. Yeah. And it came from a very simple insight was like 25% of Americans weren't sure what potato chips were made out of, <laughs> oh right? My God. Um, and it's not because they're not smart. It's because people had lost faith in food. Right, like, yeah, okay. like That's processed food. Insight. Like, what are like, what is it? What is this again? Yeah. And we had done a bunch of work on craft food previously in our in our individual careers, and so we kind of understood um, that whole that whole thing. So we just created this whole farmer campaign, and then even the mnemonic of the way that the the so design is always in there, where the lathe circle actually starts as a potato chip, gets sliced, and then turns into the logo. Um, and Andy and Hilton worked on that work. Um, it was, and, like, it was a potato, right? Is yeah, that what it was? Yeah. Yes, that's stuff and then was all, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, and you know, and when you realize that a potato, like a like a natural potato, like the the the, the base flavor, it really only has three ingredients. It's you know, it's really a potato, oil, yeah. and salt. It's um, anyway. So we did that campaign, and it was massively successful. It's such a great. It's like a great human insight, working hand in hand with strategy. Like you said, design at its core. It's really all the things that you're talking about coming together. And for your first real big campaign after launching a new agency. Yeah, we did that one. And then I think we did Sun Chips. And that one was all based on this idea of like just simple steps. Like people wanted to do better, but they weren't going to go crazy. So this was could just be a simple step. And we had some fun on that. Like we ended up working, I think, with Ed Norton and um, and um, National Geographic on, uh, on, on a bunch of programs and... Um, yeah. This so, is, and, and the this first is still just the five of you at the time. Oh no, no. So we the hiring happened fast. Like oh we, really? Okay. Yeah. Like I think we were hiring a new person every week and then every month for like years. What? Yeah. Really? That was the trajectory. Yeah, it was crazy. Oh man. How do, you, th- how do you even do that? Isn't that your whole day hiring? Like hiring people is yeah. a whole job. Like there was four of us, four partners. And I think when I left, the number was like 145 or 165. And I never know what agency numbers because you don't count everybody. Of course, yeah. But it was something like that. Um, and so you kind of go through the math, you know? Oh, man. That, I, like, honestly, that's a full-time job in itself. Yeah. Because you, wanna, you guys have such a great chemistry, like you said, relationships. So you can't just hire anybody. Yeah. And you have to remember, so we're, we're starting this agency. We're living on airplanes. So we were in Dallas literally every week for five years oh, i've probably been 
like the pandemic was the first time since starting that agency that I hadn't been on a plane. Like I've been on a plane every two weeks of my life since I started Juniper Park. Really? Yeah. So like, I think my last year before the pandemic, I flew out of Toronto 70 times. Oh my God, you're 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 like the up the what's that movie up up here? Or well, no, no, you're because like the expert now. Yeah, well, no, because I, I don't get I didn't get to go to like Asia or somewhere where you get the big miles, but right. but we were all you know that was before everybody did everything digitally and blah blah blah. So you would have to go down there, you'd have those meetings, and like I remember in the early days, getting up in the morning, flying to Dallas, having a meeting, and flying home so I could put my kids to bed that night. Ah, uh, do do you? With this new digital world, I, and I don't want to lose the, because I want to hear about how Quake was formed, but with this new digital world, do you miss the travel or are you happy to be a little more rooted? Uh, to- for sure, happy to be more rooted. For sure. Um, I do miss sometimes the travel. You know, probably when I was younger, I would say I would miss like all the client dinners and stuff. Well, relationships too, yeah. right? That's how oh, you yeah. made well, I mean, that I magic. Mean, I mean... I think we got numb to that when we went away, when everybody hid away. I think once we get back into that, we'll be like, oh my God, that was so great. Yeah. Um, really strong friendships and relationships. Like like years later, you're still very strongly friends with people, even if you're not working with them. Um, now, probably the thing that I miss most about travel was waking up with the king size bed all to myself. <laughs> And then the taking way. the 30 minute shower with the uh, 30 different kinds of soap and all those smells. Um, that's probably what I miss the most. Yeah, no today. laundry to do, no yeah. lunches to make. Yeah, I, I was saying, <laughs> I was saying, I can literally scratch, spend more time with my family off my to do list forever. <laughs> I love my family, but I, it's fair. It's yeah. kind of fair. So I, I was like, yeah. I could go away for like a night and just wake up in a hotel room. I mean, some of my favorite travel memories, I, I used to always stay at the Soho house in Chicago. I think we heard a rumor that Adrian uh, Goodgall, who's now at uh, Jones Knowles Ritchie and I, were the number one guests at the Soho house in Chicago. We stayed there more often than anybody because wow. we were there every week. Right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, those little rituals like... You fly in, you get up in the morning, you have your shower, you go across the street to Sawada, you get that most fantastic coffee. Once a week, you give yourself the right to have that donut because they make these these incredible donut vault donuts that have, they're called camo donuts and it's like matcha and chocolate and caramel. It looks like camouflage. Oh man. Yeah. And then you eat that in the Uber to the office and, you know, and sometimes those are the little things you really miss. Yeah. Um, having multiple offices was great. So the, the, the DDB years were really fun. I mean, so the TBWA and um, BBDO years were great too, but for, just for different, I mean, Miller Lite was great because when we worked with 180 and TBWA, they were in LA. And so every week I had to go to LA in, and in Canada, that's pretty awesome in January, yeah, February, yeah, yeah. March. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's and you you know it's like we're gonna be well I'll just be staying at the Viceroy here or 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 the Four Seasons or whatever. And I kinda missed that. That was pretty great. Yeah. And then in Chicago it was cool because that role was the uh, North American um chief design officer. So working uh, it living in Toronto, working out of Chicago. So I would be in both cities every week. Do you think the travel's gonna come back or do you think we're gonna move to a more hybrid model? Hybrid. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I don't think that we needed to be there all the time. We just accepted that that's kind of what you did. Yeah. Um, 
I think we will need to travel more than maybe people might initially think because mm -hmm. relationships will um, like Zoom is not going to take over for a dinner. No way. And yeah, it, it's so true. You know, and even if you just meet your client once a month, you know, 12 dinners, like by the time you have, you know, glass of wine, a fantastic meal, you're kind of talking um, you know, you there, there. There's an openness that can start to. You, you can be more forthright about things. So I think that will stick. Whether it'll be even once a month, but once every three months might be enough. Like we were probably overdoing it. Yeah, but those relationships built your career in many ways, right? You talk about the four of you, five of you being able to pull over the hugest client. And yeah, well, it was only four of us, but yeah, four. Yeah. Wow. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think in the end, like the stuff that they were re it was actually really good for was those weird little insights like i remember talking with the folks at dinner with miller light about how in texas and you know people think texas is a state i think it's like the size of the it's the size of france or something just in geography yeah, it's, crazy it's a humongous huge. place right yeah, and, and it's very different and culturally of, yeah, the, yeah every city is different and i remember they wanted to get uh, you know pos of the, all the new work into the bodegas and, but the challenge is they're independently owned. So you have to go to every door. It's almost impossible. Oh. Yeah. Right. Whereas like if it's a chain, head office just says blah, blah, blah. And then the like stuff Seven gets, Eleven or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And it gets sent out. And so it was like, we really wanted to get the brand, more presence on the blah, blah. So our solution was to design a can that was only Texas had that can. And, uh, and we wanted to reach out specifically to a uh, Hispanic um, audience who were, you know, underserved by our other stuff and it was local. And so we ended up working with Charles Globitz, who's a really fantastic illustrator, lives in Tijuana, works in, uh, in, in the States as an, as our teacher. So he's like the perfect mix of, of both cultures. So we did the Texas can. It was the very first can with uh, Spanish language on it for the brand. Wow. Yeah, and then there we so you know we we do that work, and I think it's like a double digit increase in sales almost immediately. And the great thing is it's it's equally loved by all Texans. So like everybody said it was their can because it was because it, it was really about the merging of the Texas culture and the kind of the the, the whole history of it. It was fantastic uh, piece to be a part of, and you know we kept it very honest whenever we would do work like that. We would work with community. We would work with our um, partners. We would work with artists who are like connected to the community, connected to the ideas, because you can't fake culture. Impossible. So, um, you know, that was a huge hit. And I remember talking to Gavin, the CEO, and we're having a beer, of course. <laughs> and he's like, oh, that's no, really great. It's really great. And I, I won't say what the number was that we increased it. And he goes, yeah, when we do it next year, we just want to, and he adds like three to the number. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, those little insights sometimes they don't come on a brief. They they come out of those relationships. And you were in you were in Texas. So you got to see what was right, isn't that? Yeah, how yeah. It? We go like we 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 would do um, ride-alongs where you you sit in the cars with the beer salespeople, and they would take you to their accounts, and you would go into where people buy beer, and you'd talk to the people that do it. You go to the local yeah. bars, and we would go to like everywhere, Boston, you know, and you would. You'd go through all that stuff and you would you would have a beer with them and you'd eat some lunch and you'd find out like 
what's happening here in this marketplace. I, I just think you just can't get that. And I photos. Presume, like, so you, many photos. Yeah, photos and ta- good conversations and like really immersing yourself. Like I know we're kind of joking like, yeah, I get to go have beers. But oh, no, no, having no. the beers with those people in all those different cities informs work work. that yeah that really matters and sometimes it's the strangest thing like you realize um that a tent card it's the lowest thing it's too big or it's too small or it's weird or you find out that when they package the beer on the shelves at the local convenience store that you can't even see the logo because of the way that they put the beer on or you find out that they put another beer next to you in one market and now the two of them look the same and you know there's just weirdest things that that um, you're not going to get in a brief. I mean, you might, but you, you're not going to get a brief from 50 markets, right? Because, you know, we, you know the, hot, the hot word a few years ago, data, data, we need to, uh, data points. And, but a lot of the stuff you're talking point is beyond what you could pull out of a data point. Like you actually need to physically I mean, it's take the thing, the thing I say, off the shelf. Yeah, I say data. Data is almost useless. We have two words, data and information. And information is data that has been put in formation. So you can do something with it. Right. Um, and when you go on on those trips, you get information. You're you're there. It's like, oh, here's the form. <laughs> I can see what the store looks like. I can and we would do little things like the average convenience store shopper who buys a beer, the round trip is just over sixty seconds. Okay. You, you the, saw that from watching, sort of watching. Yeah, that and they did data, and they laid literally data. timed people. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and so you you would have to walk into a store, grab a six pack, get to the counter, pay for it, and back in your car. And it's like it's less than two minutes on an on you know off peak hours. It's like one minute. Okay. And then you're like, okay, so that is less. So the whole experience is less than an old fashioned commercial. Because oh, they're, yeah. they're doing other things, right? And then you're like, okay, so that's what we have to contend with. Maybe this small type is not going to work for this consumer. Right. You know, at a an IPA that you have to read about in a pub where people have decided that they're going to be here for four hours. Well, yeah, you can take a different approach because you can see they're sitting there. They're, they're loving the menu. They want to read it. But mm-hmm. this consumer is in a hurry and they got somewhere to go and they'll buy things out of, you know, um, like just a, a pattern, right? And so you have to you have to disrupt the pattern if you want them to buy something they don't normally buy. How do you disrupt the pattern? Well, actually, let's talk about another big brand identity that you just did because I, ha- I, have, a, I have a suspicion that a lot of this uh, thinking applies to this building of the brand, which is the good food identity that just launched. Can we talk about that? Yeah, good food is... Um, so we, I, first of all, we love the work and we love the client. They're fun to work with. So those are all like greats. But good food was a category that we had... So way we kind of do new businesses, we're all about quakes. And, you know, I talked about when my wife um, passed away. And one of the big learnings I learned was as much as the world talks about we're disruptors. I mean, most often, actually, we're interrupters. We're not disruptors. Actually, we're actually mostly in the interruption business. But the other thing is, is that as disruptors as you think you might be, the world is more disruptive than any brand will ever be. So we built the brand Quake around the four big major quakes. And, you know, the quakes are like cultural, technological, economic, and environmental. And that those quakes are kind of mega quakes that are bigger than any one brand or company. And so you have to understand what they're doing because they will affect you. So we started, you know, putting together lists of agents of industries that we think were facing quakes. 
Um, and of course, the food industry and grocery is one of them. So we had identified Good Food as a brand that would be right in our sweet spot. And then, of course, those relationships, you know, uh, uh, Melanie shows up there and we're like, I've worked with her grip. You know, she's fantastic. And she was at Good Food. She, she ends up getting oh, a job at Good Food. Here. Of course, I see that she gets a job there. And so we reach out and uh, we had already done a bunch of research in the category because we, re- we thought of it as a category that we should be a part of, that that would be a great category for us to find a client in. So we were already ready to hit the ground running. We had uh, great conversations with her. And that was a category that was like hit by major quakes, right? So, um, you know, technological, people were shopping online, people were having food delivered, right? Yeah, the Uh, pandemic really seismically changed get groceries. All of a sudden, you know, the, the culture around food and grocery was completely different. Economic, the whole business model of grocery had shifted as a result um and then environmental well you know COVID is an environmental force right so it is a factor yeah so it, it it worked perfectly for us and then when we started working with them and of course they had these huge competitors you know global competitors and they had these big ambitions and they were going just from um, meal delivery to also grocery delivery mm-hmm. so you know we when we started working with them on what are we going to do how do we make this brand um, you know, as we say, unmistakable, because there's really only two things you can be. You're unmistakable or you're mistakable. Right. There's no in between. Your brand is one or the other. Yeah. And, you know, food industry is a lot like the beer industry where it has real um, communication challenges. Like the beer industry, we had to find a way around how do you not get away? How do you get away with just sticking a beer in the corner of the screen? Yeah. Corner of the ad corner. Because when a human holds a beer, it's too small to be branded in in the grand scheme of things. So how do we get the branding there? Well, food delivery, meal delivery at the time was kind of similar because yeah, everybody showed these overhead shots of plates. Yes. That and was so, such a thing. <laughs> yeah. And so like and and one of the challenges is you have to do that because it it's your product. It, and it is how people but the other problem is if you do that, you look just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jonathan, um, the CEO and the founder of Good Food, um, was a very um, bold kind of visionary sort of CEO. I mean, which makes sense. Um, But he was like, I don't want to look like any other grocer because we're not like any other grocer, which was great. Um, And so that's why we ended up with these, you know, fantastic color patterns and the hot colors. And our our agency does a lot of color. I mean, you wouldn't know it because I'm dressed like Dracula here. For the record, Barry's all in black. Oh, we have white shoes on. I have white shoes. There's your pop. (laughs) But you know, in our offices, you know, we got big pink walls and our colors hot pink as a as a pink. And but we really like color, and so we we built this brand out of these bold colors that that normally you would never do in grocery and it's crazy when you look at the grocery that category they're all green yeah like i won't name all the competitors but you're right absolutely but if you pull a thought up in your mind you're going to think green so a couple of things we did we were like good food uh challenge with the name is one it's incredibly tells you what it is but two they're both very common words so we have to add something that's more memorable than that it's not like it's called like a word that you can't forget, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other, and it's so. The, and the other thing that we did was, we had to uh, make people taste the food when they can't go down the grocery aisle. Okay. Ooh. 
And I can't put pictures of the meal because in the box, I don't know what's inside there. And I'm not, I'm not going to do like the steak box and then the, you know, the pasta box. That's crazy. Right. Um, so what we ended up having to do is we, we had to figure that out. So one of the things that we sort of learned is this idea of putting color on your plate. You know, the more colorful the meal, the more colorful the plate, you see that as vibrant, as tasting. Yeah. You can, you know, there's this taste that comes from that. Mm-hmm. So we built this whole brand around these bright, bold, colorful flavors. And then if your neighbor keeps getting their food delivery in the same, like, honestly, most of them are just like cardboard boxes with like one logo on it. Yep. And it it's literally an advertisement for this is the most boring food in the world. <laughs> I never thought of it, that, but yeah. Because it's like, oh, same old, same old. Oh, it yeah. looks exactly the same. Yeah. Oh, what is that? A big box of the same. Yeah. And um, what we designed was, you know, three different boxes, bold colors, yeah. all different words, and then they could, and then the, the side of it had um, ingredients for great meals. You may not even have those meals, but you know, if you see something on there. And you might be like, oh, maybe I should order that next week, you know. Yeah. Um, but also your neighbor down the hall or across the road looks at their box and it's like, literally, what does this food taste like? Well, apparently cardboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and how much variety is it? I don't know. That's the same box Brown that came here last week. Cardboard. Literally the same box. <laughs> yeah. And then you look at the good food neighbor just across the way and it's like, oh, well, they have they have a hot pink box today, and now they've got this eggplant box, and now they yeah. got this ocean box. It's fun too. It's super and, fun. And mealtime should be fun. Yeah. So that was a very simple thing, and then we we extended the same thing to obviously delivery. So all the vehicles yeah, are not great. the same color, but they're all the same color palette. Yeah. And then we took those colors, and we had to build a whole brand system around them, and which means in Canada you have to be uh, AODA compliant for all your web stuff, which means you need to be compliant. Uh, for people that have different levels of sight. Yeah. Very easy to do when you've got four colors. Harder when your whole brand is based on this idea of like color and taste and and excitement. And you want to have enough color to build a whole system around it. So we ended up having to not only get all AODA compliant um, colors, but they also had to be like a beautiful family and they all had to work together. So we did that for them. Um, And then the next thing that we ended up doing was, you know, a food company... They don't just sell food; they sell imagination. Ooh, yes, right? like yes. we know this, right? Because we—that's what the insiders' report was. You know, yeah. that's what the—it's like, it's like what they are to food, kind of like what IKEA is. You know, you look at it, you're like, oh, I could do my living room like this. Well, you want people, so we 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 knew we had to uh, produce a system um, that could let them produce content because they produced a lot of content. They had a big internal team, like Miller, by the way. Most of what Miller did, we never did. They took the things that we did and they did it based on our stuff. And this was the same way. There's like, got to be a lot of trust in that handing it off. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's always this thing. It's like, um, do you trust your client to do this? And it's sort of like, why do they trust us to know how their business runs? Yeah, fair, fair point. So it's like, well, if they're going to trust me, then we're going to trust them. It seems fair. Um, so we, in this instance on Good Food, though, we actually worked with the internal teams. So, you know, Valentin um, was was on the team. So we would meet with her every single week. We went through the work. And that wasn't like, hey, can you sign off on this? It was more like, what are your pain points? What are the problems we need to solve? What does this need to do? So we ended up producing a content system. I think there's a video of it on, on our website. But that basically all lives around these little squares, these color cubes. Yep. And... We figured out the relation between all of the type and all the colors, and we and, 
and the imagery. And then we built a system where they could be infinitely scaled. So you can take four panels from a brochure and turn that into um, your Instagram carousel. Oh, cool. Yeah, you can take it and, and scale it up and scale it large. And it's kind of all relational so that you don't have to reinvent every time. Now, you do have to tweak because, you know, proportions change and stuff. Um, but it, it really means that they could, if they produce a piece of content, it could become three pieces of content um, very, very quickly. It goes back to your operating system. Yeah, operating system. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, and and we knew that because you know they're a fast growing company. I mean, the level of products that they're out. That I mean, they're not only is just their business model ambitious, but they have huge variety in products. They're always inventing new products. I, I forget the number. I don't even know if it's public, so I probably won't say it. But um, but it's like a huge number of products that they're always bringing out. And so what we needed to do was give them a content system that, from the consumer's point of view, always felt really fresh and new. But from their point of view, didn't overly tax them because the business was taxing enough. Like um, they didn't need us to create like a system where everything has to be photoshopped, or right. you know. And it's like, what Photoshop type? Are you crazy? How do I do that online? We got rid of all of that stuff. Um, so it was a really huge project in that perspective. Probably took almost a year to really do the whole thing from oh, start a short to timeline considering you're yeah, yeah. <laughs> some of your other projects you're saying oh, no, like other, years some, out yeah years out yeah. <laughs> but sometimes the years out projects are like we finish the work but it's not gonna happen for three years what yeah because you're in on the ground floor and these it's are new innovations. brand new innovations and large innovations and innovations that are in many many countries and different languages and uh and you have to figure out like what how that relates to the timeline in the local market other markets and then there's all the legal checks and yeah so I, I, you started talking about quake a little bit you talked about the four pillars of quake and we talked about launching juniper park before we wrap up today can you tell me a little bit about launching quake what what you learned from juniper that you did differently with quake and how you guys are building this company out yeah it's it's they're complete opposites really in, in almost every way really well, because at Juniper Park, um, I mean, it literally was like a jack in the beanstalk and we're on the beanstalk as it's growing. Like it was so fast. Right. And and we were young. My life personally was in chaos because I you know, was coming over the loss of my wife. I had, uh, you know, great partners. So we had a, a really great team there. Whereas Quake, I, I know everybody's well, everybody's fine, um, but I don't have any partners. So you know it's, I mean? it's your it's your company. Yeah, yeah. So there's no partners this time around. Thank so you. Cool. Yeah. So there's no partners. Kind of scary. Super scary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's actually not. I don't know if it's scary, but it's um. It's just you realize when you don't have partners, you actually realize how much of the lifting partners do. It's almost like if you pick up a sofa with your friends, you're like, it's not that heavy. And then you pick it up at yourself, you're like, oh my God, the sofa's pretty heavy. Oh, that's such a great analogy. Yes, you I know, can imagine. Like, it's just stuff like that you just never had to worry about. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I, I ran my own agency for 10 years and you know, blah, blah, blah. But I never did that thing. In, uh, so I'm actually total newbie on that one component that I've never done before. Um, but... The, but I would say it's all the lessons that we learned, obviously, through Juniper Park, for good and bad. You know, the things that worked great, the things that worked less great. Um, starting this one, uh, since we own it completely, we ch and and since the business world is entirely different, we really changed the, like inside out how we do it. So uh, we have a physical office. It's a beautiful office. Why? 
because nobody has to go there, which sounds so backwards. It's like, why yeah. do you have a beautiful office and nobody has to go there? It's like, because I need to coax people out of their bedrooms into work. There, it needs to be worth the commute. Okay. So Otherwise, what makes it what makes it so great? So what we did was um, we, we kind of figured out like, what do you hate about large industrial farm land offices? Yeah. Yeah. And those places are built backwards. So they're largely built to be impressive to the people who never go there and oppressive to the people who work there. I really agree. Right? Yep. Yep. So when the clients walk in, it's like this huge amount of space is to walk in. This huge boardroom that's too big for almost every meeting except for the one meeting. So, you know, those and you need those places. When they look, they just see used to see rows and rows of like people working. Yes. And and you could see everybody working. So it was great theater, but it was just wasn't a great place to work. Yeah. I agree. And also, why did they give us laptops if they expected us to be there all the time? <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, you realize Because they expected you to take the laptop home and keep working till midnight. Yeah, That's well, why. they didn't even expect that. It's like like I've worked in offices with slides. I've worked in offices with <laughs> basketball courts. <laughs> yeah. Until Quake, I haven't worked in offices with enough space for people to just do what they want to do. Um, which is their job. So what we did is we we did a, a, a few things. Smaller offices so we've got like a 1500 square foot space. Mm-hmm. We have windows on every side of the building except for one. Uh, we have massive skylights. We we oriented everybody's desk faces out onto Ronsi Street. We're on the, the third floor. Oh, so everybody great. has this floor to ceiling and I mean a 14 foot ceilings for floor to ceiling glass. Um and in order to do that, it necessitated me designing all of the desks because the average desk is, I only, I figured out that for everybody to have exactly the space that they needed, the desk could only be 27 inches deep. So, how did you, this is so cool. Well, because I, I knew how much space a person needed. So when I first started uh, Quake, I worked by myself with freelancers, like at a desk. And every day when I worked at the desk, I would measure how much of the desk I was using. And I came down to, I, I don't use more than 27 inches of the desk. So I was like, okay, so we're going to make the desk 27 oh my God, inches. This is so cool. I love stuff like this. Yeah. It's so smart. Yeah. And then we made sure that everybody had distance and so that nobody was like giving each other COVID yeah, or yeah. whatever or the whatever. next <laughs> thing is. Yeah. Um, so we did that. And then I, so we designed all the desks, all the furniture, basically 90% of the furniture in the office I designed and I worked with uh, um fantastic uh woodworker and she built everything oh my god this yeah. is so cool oh yeah yeah sarah rose woods she's amazing except she's not making furniture at the moment but if she was you should get her to make you some furniture so we worked together we made all the furniture so locally made local craftspeople. so we did that we designed it for the space but then the other things that we did was like everybody got a proper chair everybody has a 5k monitor at their desk which is on a proper null arm so that they can have the right space and yeah. they can get their, so their eyes don't get sore. Oh my God. Um, everybody has a proper chair. Everybody has their Paul Smith lamp. Everybody has a desk that weighs uh, about 70 pounds so that it doesn't shake when you use it. We've all had those shaky desks. And it's just my way of saying to them, like, you matter to me. And so I've invested in you. So when you invest back, it's fair, you know. Um, and then the other thing that we did is we're on a residential street. You don't have to take a 15-minute elevator ride up. You don't have to get off the subway with 400 other people. Desperate. Yeah. You just walk up. There's nobody there. Uh, we have a 400-square-foot patio. So there's a barbecue for everybody. There's a there's a sofa out there. There's a 12-foot um, 
umbrella out there so they can work oh out there all God. summer. Um, we also have, yeah, and then the boardroom, you know, surprise, surprise, we have a brand new 85 inch TV. I don't know that that works. That's easy to use. It's Apple TV. Yeah, that doesn't have do like I? sixteen controllers. It's yeah. all very simple. So, and then we also did weird things like we put in a UV lighting system inside our air conditioning uh, and heating units, um, so we don't share our air with anybody. And our boardroom has its own air system that's shared with nobody. And both of those have UV lighting, which will kill like ninety nine percent of airborne contaminants. Oh my gosh! Yeah, this so is amazing. Just to make it safe. So we did that, and then everybody, we kind of come in. I go to work every day because I, I, I personally need to be somewhere else. Yep, okay. Um, but people come in two to three days a week. And it's sort of based on need? and Yeah, we try to um, – so it, we try to gang it up a little bit just because there's that communal aspect. Yeah, I do miss that. Yeah, and, and I think what we noticed was the – Folks that that lost the most were the younger ones. For sure. Because, you know, people like us have enough memory banks of experiences and relationships and we've got shorthands and you can call up people that you've known for years. And But when you just come in, there's like so, you know, especially when you learn like most of human language is nonverbal and it's yeah. like, like Zoom, like I'm not going to call up you know, somebody to just shoot nonsense with them that I, that's just like a new hire. And it's like a young person in their bedroom talking to their boss privately. It's yeah, just like, yeah. it's, I mean, I guess you could do it, but it's really no, not it's a natural and both people would probably feel kind of weird and uncomfortable. And it's, you know, so, I mean, we work around that totally, but, um, but I, having the office and, and letting people come and go when they want. And the fact, and what we notice is like, they go out for lunch now. You know, they'll go yeah, have drinks. You know, like the old days. Yeah, when we hung out. Yeah, and um, and we, you know, on Fridays we do breakfast, right? So oh, that's um, wicked. Yeah, so we can do breakfast, or we like if it any time in the winter when it was decent weather, we would just make um, barbecue because uh, it's right there, yeah, right? Yeah. But and, and so part of that building that space from the from from a work force is like how do you build that sense of community in this time when we're we're never going to be all together ever again but how do we make the workspace work so that's that and then from the client's perspective it's the same thing it's a nice place to come if you're a client um we tell clients we have a 400 square foot patio that you can see the lake from and you can see the cn tower from and it's on a streetcar line um if you give us a brief, you can come out and hang out here all day if you want. Yeah. And it's just a chill place to hang out and work. And the clients do come yeah. outside. And we'd have meetings outside if people are uncomfortable with being indoors. We have outdoor and we have a heater and all that stuff. And yeah. we want to be out there. Um, so we try to work around it that way. That's a, like that's a very COVID specific. But the the brand itself, like why did we start Quake? And it look, I worked for lots of agencies i've worked global agencies i've worked i've done all that stuff mm-hmm. and i don't regret any of it and i had great relationships and great days and i've done great work and i've met great people in all of them and then this time around uh, i don't have the rush to become the biggest agency in canada anymore like i like i actually like that we can be smaller mm-hmm. i like that when clients come on board that we can be much more intimate in our relationship with them. Um, and there's no fat. I like that we have a very handpicked team. You know, some of the folks like Cody and Kevin who work at our office, they did all the metal light work. 
you know, so these oh, are people really? that I've worked with for years. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, they're just, I mean, they're fantastic. Um, uh, and then, you know, we have new members that keeps things fresh. Like, I like that we can do that. I know that sounds very strange, but you, you know everybody's name. No, and it, it, you it, see everybody all the time. And, and, and I, we, have a, we have a process we call Core Plus More. So a lot of people would say, why don't you just be totally virtual? Why do you even need a space? Like, that's a cost. Um, why do you need full-time employees? That's a cost. And, you know, mm-hmm. lots of people do it that way. I think, I think having a space for as little time as people use it is important because it produces a, not just a theoretical home, but a real home. Mm-hmm. But I also think that creative teams that have a it, real in-person bond are probably going to be better. I could be totally wrong. Maybe it's old school. But I think that when you get to know each other and you have those conversations, even for a day or two, because like the times in the creative process, that really helps. And then other times you just need to do work. You don't need to be around people. So it's not about like, you got to use the office. It's like, make the office a tool for something. And so for those collaborative times and those together times, it's a tool for that. And it's all built around that. For the times you just got to crank stuff out, I don't do it at home. It's totally fine. Um, but the same thing with having the employees uh, that are full-time, I think doing a core plus more helps clients because you have people internally that you build relationships with, back to you know, relationships. They have institutional knowledge. They've worked on the brand. Everybody knows what the rules are. All those little subtleties are there. And then, of course, we bring in you know, subject matter experts that you know we don't need full-time or, frankly, some of these folks – Nobody can get them full time anymore. <laughs> they yeah. they've realized that they don't need to do that. Yeah. So, um, so we try to do the best of both worlds, and then totally from the client's perspective, we work. We say with vanguards and icons, right? So we're happy with both sides of that spectrum. You know, older brands that need to re- you know reinvent and rethink. Uh, like we 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 always say that clients come to us when they're you know facing change or creating change. Um, so we work on both sides of that. But we really love this idea of figuring out, and because that's when they would need us, is what is the change that has to happen? Like, let's identify the change. Let's identify why the change is happening. Let's see how that change is probably going to affect you. And then let's figure out what you do. And I think our industry is overly in love with disruption. Yes, that is a hot yeah. <laughs> hot word. And it's a great word. <laughs> and it's And it's great. But, you know, equally important is what do you do when you've been disrupted? Okay. Because yeah. everybody's going to be disrupted. Mm-hmm. Back to your thing where we're an interruption. Yeah. Like, you know, and that's why, you know, my, my life was incredibly disrupted. And it took me 10 years to figure that out and get my head around that. And it's like so many of these brands we work on have been disrupted. And so, you know, it's not just about understanding what happens when a category wants to disrupt. It's like, what do you do when a category has been disrupted? And then you start to realize that that's when the operating system makes sense because they're running an operating system that doesn't work the other way. And when I, we, we, we talk about building brands vocabulary, a, a great example of this is before Uber, you had two ways of getting around, a limo. Sorry, three, like a bus. Yeah. Or four, if I say, your own car, a bus, a cab, or a limo. Yeah. But they invented this new word, which is called rideshare. Yeah. Rideshare is not those other things in our minds today. And that's the power of giving a brand vocabulary. And so there's like written vocabulary, 
But then there's like vocabulary of interaction. You know, you go to an Apple store and there's no cashier. That's yeah. a vocabulary yeah. of how it works. There's a vocabulary of visuals and storytelling. Um, and I, the advertising industry does a great job of like narrative storytelling. But we also want to work on like the utility, which is not sexy, but it's 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 a massive difference. The interaction, the experience you have with the brand. And sometimes that goes all the way back to like, What's your approach to visuals? What's your approach to colors? What's your approach to language? What's your approach to interaction? What's your approach to all those things? So, and w- and that's useful because they come to us because a lot of times they've been disrupted or they want to disrupt something, and usually that means you need a new tool set, right? You mentioned that you, um, you know, a lot of these relationships. I'm sure a lot of clients have followed you and come to Quake because you've built all these relationships. You've got team members that you've worked with for over 10 years. When it comes to hiring the new students, people who are fresh, because a lot of the people who listen to the podcast are students coming up in the industry. What do you look for and what really gets you excited about this sort of next generation of creativity that's coming in? So the new generation is, it's easy to say that they're totally different. But I mean, the reality is we got new tools. We have a 60,000 year old brain. We're not that different, right? Like <laughs> yeah, we're fair. literally running computers that were designed 60,000 years ago. Yeah. And, and, we, and we all build off of culture and stuff. So I think it's going to sound like old fashioned in some respects, but I think what was great 20 years ago at the core of those students is still what's great now. The tools and the way that they do it will clearly be different because technology and culture evolves. What we like about, you know, when we see students and we fall in love. And like Cody, who works with us, I literally hired him out of school. Oh, so, that's awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've hired, I mean, um, we're hired, we've had great experience with, you know, young designers who come right out of school, Dana and Zoe, and people who are just fantastic out of school. Um, it's always curiosity. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a couple of things you can have, right? You can have mastery. Some Sometimes you meet people and they just have like incredible mastery. And it's like... So you meet somebody, they just have great style and they have an unbelievable sense of color or proportion. You're like, how do they have that already? I mean, I'm still working on you know a lot of those things. But some of them have that. Some of them will come with unbelievable sense of imagination. And maybe they don't have the mastery or the other bits, but they're very imaginative. Um, the, the, some of them will, you know, obviously come just, they're curious as hell. And you can tell that in an interview. That's actually the easiest one to prove. Because you can put something out there, and if they don't bite, then you, they're not that curious, right? Um, the ones that are probably the rarest that we... So, first of all, all of those we hire, and we need them. Because, again, it's that 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 um, X-Men. I use say X-Men. I don't even read comic books. But, <laughs> um, but you know, you we hire for... Um, we basically have this idea we, call, we hire for holes. So, we hire for what each other cannot be. We can't have each other's life experience. So you want as broad a base of life experiences as you can have. And we can't have each other's individual superpowers because um, some people are just, for some reason, we don't know what it is, biased towards some exceptionality. And so you need that on your team. You don't need everyone to have it. You just need someone to have it. The ones that we are the rarest, so... The unicorn students, they're the holistic thinkers. They're the ones 
that understand the hook that everything hangs on. And you can see it in their books. And they get how the scaffolding of an idea works. And they're probably the rarest, not just in school. They're probably in our industry, the rarest. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, and so if we find one of those, like we're, we stay real close to those individuals just because they invariably with experience and knowledge will just become way better, right? And that never goes out of style. That's always needed. And as technology changes, those individuals are the ones that have the least problem moving on to like whatever's next because it's the same skill set. And they and they've transcended through the, the the technology in the years, like those same unicorns that you found sort of early in your career. It's the same thing. It's the same. Yeah, yeah, because you know the challenge is, um, you know, aesthetics and th- those things change over time, and so you know you can it's almost like it's almost like when you see somebody with those like tribal tattoos and you're like that's of a time yeah and you know it's of a time yeah and it doesn't really progress always to the future but but this idea always progresses the individuals that kind of see the scaffolding of how ideas hold together and work and um they always do and they can always work with the other people to like make sure that the type is just right that the proportions are just right that the system has the rules you know to make it make sense right um so if we find so if you were a student and you're and you want to build on a skill i think that's probably the most marketable skill that exists today be a unicorn no (laughs) yes be a unicorn but uh somebody has to be unicorn yeah yeah but um be be the be like figure out the scaffolding of your idea not just the execution of it really the thing that holds it all together I think, I mean, we've talked about a couple of projects that are like that. And those are the individuals, I think, that have the rarest of talent. Barry, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show today. I think it's time for us to go get a Miller Lite on the patio, as was promised at the beginning. That sounds perfect. Let's go. Thank you. Barry, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you listeners for tuning in to the ADCC podcast that proves it's not just about creativity, it's about getting it actually created. The Advertising and Design Club of Canada is a nonprofit organization dedicated to encouraging excellence in Canadian advertising and design. Follow us on Instagram at the ADCC or email us anytime at created at the ADCC.ca.